Today, we're talking with Dick Reisman, founder of Teleshuttle. Dick has decades of experience innovating in digital media industries. His recent work has been to develop FairPay, a radical approach to revenue and pricing for digital media content, the subject of his 2016 book, FairPay is an architecture for creating and sustaining customer value first relationships that sheds new light on conventional models and points to innovative solutions that go beyond freemium to a cooperatively adaptive hybrid of free and paid content. Fair pay responds to the failure of the invisible hand of classical economics to deal effectively with digital services and exploits the power of computer-mediated markets to build relationships based on a new and more collaborative invisible handshake. Details are in his Fair Pay Zone blog, which you can connect with, uh, and please do. Reisman is now working on a pro bono basis with industry and academic partners on research trials and applications of Fair Pay. One of the biggest challenges in the AI economy is how to address the race to the bottom in digital services and the exploitation of gig workers where income disparity with the few at the top is greater than we have seen in our lifetimes. We'll discuss how Dick articulates the principles of fair pay and rethinking revenue models for digital services. Dick will also give his perspective on how the investment community can play a role in addressing the crisis in revenue sharing and creating a fairer, more equitable workplace so more people can participate in the benefits of digital services. So let's begin. Hello, Dick. Hi, Jeff. Uh, thanks for inviting me to your series of podcasts and right. uh, related to the themes in your book, which uh, seems like a very interesting uh, take on things. Well, thank you so much. Uh, so, Dick, can you please describe your vision for fair pay? Um, yeah, it's sort of grown over the past uh, nine years or so, and it builds on the career I've had in media tech for a long time. Um, and I think where it sort of aligns with what you're talking about is that it's sort of looking toward a more human market capitalism. Uh, it's kind of interesting that yesterday there was an op-ed in the Times by uh, Stiglitz, the economist in Columbia, which he refers to pro progressive capitalism, uh, and it has some of the broad themes. Uh, there's a quote by Peter Drucker that I like, which is, the greatest danger in times of turbulence is not the turbulence, uh, it's to act with yesterday's logic. And so I've been focused on the fact that digital requires a new logic. And what I've been trying to develop is a new logic for the digital economy. And as I worked on it, I sort of realized that it really goes much deeper than the, the more of a point solution that I had originally focused on. Uh, my book sort of begins to get on that fair pay, and the subtitle is Adaptively Win-Win Customer Relationships, which sort of gets us the theme. And that works between the firm and the customer, but it also goes down through the market ecosystem, so it affects employees, suppliers, uh, contractors, all that kind of stuff. And the basic theme is, having been in digital, I've been watching this revenue train wreck, uh, and 
we had this vision of the celestial ju jukebox where everything you wanted is available at your fingertips, but it sort of turned into uh, what people have called subscription hell. People are talking about subscription fatigue. We have these flat rate subscriptions that are all you can eat, whether you want it or not. Um, and it's gotten so there's so many of them that now it's sort of eating up your entire wallet. And there's the question of how does it map to the value you're getting? So what I did was sort of re-examine some, there's basically two interrelated sea changes that I don't think people have thought about how they come together. One is that computer-mediated relationships have deepened and we're moving from one-shot games of transactions to repeated games based on loyalty, which, which sort of ties in with a lot of the themes in your book of interrelationship. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other factor is that the invisible hand doesn't work anymore because it's based on scarcity of supply. Digital doesn't have scarcity. In fact, people have imposed artificial scarcity to try and make it work uh, and still get a price for their information. So the solution that I've been coming to really comes down to win-win relationships that focused on empowered and loyal customers and what we really need is a new social contract to sustain the effort of creation. So I've been calling it an invisible handshake because it, it's a different way to balance the powers between the supplier and the customer. And it focuses on the actual fair value to each customer. So a couple general points. Uh, and, and in addition to those two points, the, the other key point is we think of set prices as the way things work, that the business sets the price and the customer takes it. But that didn't exist before the mid-1800s. Before that, prices were mostly negotiated with people you knew you had relationships with. And there was a lot of communal norms. There'd be some caring, fairness, even generosity in how the prices were set based on the context. Uh, but in the mid-1800s, department stores emerged and they needed to be able to scale, and so they invented the price tag. Um, and there, I've got presentations that talk about a lot of this in more detail. So, you know, if you go to my blog, fairpayzone.com, that'll link to explanations of, of this in much more depth. Uh, but what's weird is we've gone to mass personalization and one to one marketing in e commerce but we're not doing it in price. And when people try to do it in price, they do it in ways that are harmful and not cooperative. So that's what I'm suggesting we change. And it has to do with value. Uh, a way to sort of think about value is to do a thought experiment. And I, I describe it as an economic demon, a little bit like the Metcalf's demon or Max, sorry, Maxwell's demon or Laplace's demon in physics. Uh, so my economic demon can read the minds of the buyers and the sellers to learn the value in use and in context and know how they used the product, the service, whether they liked it, the value they got, know the cost, figure out the value surplus, and come up with a fair sharing of that surplus. So if you could do that, you could set personalized fair prices. Uh, obviously, that's a challenge, but but let's sort of keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. um, so bringing that to another level, 
what I've realized is the core issue that, that we tend not to examine is uh, in relationships, who takes the pricing risk in terms of the value and the risk of not getting it? Uh, and it comes down to two further questions. Who decides the price? And there are some advanced strategies, which is what fair pay is especially focused on to split the decision between the buyer and the seller. But there's also a simpler aspect, which is simply when do they decide it? Can you, uh, Dick, can you give an example that uh, shows both of those? Yeah, who, who decides it? Well, typically the, the seller decides it, as I said. But pay what you want is a fairly uh, interesting example of the opposite, where the customer decides it. And it got a lot of publicity when Radiohead did their album about 10 or 12 years ago that actually was fairly successful, that put it entirely up to the customer to set the price. Now, that doesn't work on a very broad basis. It does work in narrow situations. Um, there's also both people do it in an auction where right. it's a joint process. So fair pay is, a, is another way to do a joint process, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the other question that's even simpler is when they decide it. Because with experienced goods, you don't really know the value um, of what you consume or how much you're going to consume until afterwards. So if you have to set the price ahead of, ahead of time, you have to build in a risk discount because you're afraid you're going to be disappointed. So um, I'm going to suggest some ways to set the price afterwards. and so. The my contention is that the future of subscriptions is to be risk free to the consumer, uh, because for digital services the provider risks nothing, except the opportunity to take money in exchange for no value, um, and you know people don't like that. Uh, people understand with digital that it's a real risk, and there's a way to do risk free subscriptions that that avoid that problem. So current subscriptions, you know, most common is the unlimited all you can eat. Uh, the question is, are you going to use it for the next month or next several months? Um, what if you get stuff you're not happy with? Uh, and then there's the subscription hell issue of you just need so many subscriptions you can't afford all of them. Um, people have looked at micropayments, paying per item as a way to get around that. But then there's no discounts. The meter's ticking. You're afraid you're going to get a huge bill. So that's a different kind of risk. Um, so one of the things I proposed uh, as sort of an outgrowth and a simplified form of fair pay is a risk-free subscription where you still have the business setting the price schedule, but the actual price depends on what you use. So if you had a cable subscription or a news service subscription, Instead of paying a set $5 a month, for example, you're, you would have full access. And at the end of the month, the bill would depend on what you used. There might be a cap, which could be $5, could be a little more, could be a little less, depending on how things work out. And it ramps up, but with discounts and with some flexibility, so that you know it's not like the ticking meter um, but it's totally adapted to what you use. So you don't have to decide I'm going to watch HBO or Showtime or Cinemax beforehand. You just decide, you know, what to watch. And then afterwards it gets factored in. 
You know, it's interesting, Dick, the um, the analogy. Uh, you're talking about media right. and media subscriptions as your focus. When you think about Uber and Lyft and what they have done in transportation, yep. uh, one can give up a car, which is, you know, the research shows that people only use their car 4% of the time. And mm-hmm. most of the time it's stationary. And that if you look at it on a cost basis, that the use of Uber and Lyft, which is also pricing based on the commute, tra- based on the traffic, based on the yeah. time of day, based on the distance, that all of these factors are actually changing the price and that one uses it only when one needs it. And so is that a correct analogy in terms of from the transportation field to? To a degree. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a form of dynamic pricing. Um, but the difference is that they're setting it first of all it's a scarce resource because of the labor so they're using classic dynamic pricing where it they're the ones that are totally in control of uh-huh. surge pricing um similarly that other people have experimented with other kinds of dynamic pricing but they tend to do it you know they're often not transparent in fact a lot of them are very secretive about it airlines mm-hmm. rental car companies you know they don't tell you how they're doing it and they try to hide it. Yeah. Uh, what fair pay gets to is a way to do it transparently and cooperatively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll get in, in a minute, I'll sort of explain how that works. But, but first I wanted to sort of just talk a bit about the relationship side of things. Uh, we've gone, you know, all of business is moving toward relationships with loyalty loops, customer journeys, subscriptions. We realize it's the cyclic thing. So we really are shifting from one-shot games that are zero-sum to repeated games that are more win-win. So we're, what it comes down to this value-based pricing issue that we're used to thinking about pricing based on cost or pricing based on competition. But digital brings us to a more pure kind of realm where we really need a new social contract because we need to support not the current supply but a future supply and so what i'm suggesting is the way to do that is value-based pricing Uh, because with digital the old pricing doesn't work the invisible hand doesn't work we've got this line about information wants to be free but it wants to be expensive different people value things in different ways uh, at different levels and current subscriptions you know a lot of people can't afford them because they don't use that much or they don't make enough money uh, so part of it has to do with changing the price to afterwards. But what fair pay is getting at is that you can actually change the game. So we can start to empower the customers, apply more dialogue, track reputation. And the way to change the game is now with a subscription, it's here's our monthly price, take it or leave it. And we'll hope you, we hope you will take the risk and be satisfied enough to continue the game. But where what Fair Pay does is sort of twist that and say, we will remove the risk and let you pay what you think fair for you after each month's use. But we'll continue that game beyond a few trial cycles only if we agree that you're being reasonably fair. So now you're building a relationship and you're learning what the customer values and you're nudging them to pay you enough to make it worth your while to keep them as a customer. So I've got a chart that sort of shows this as a cycle, 
how you basically set the rules, let the customer set the price. So they're pricing it backwards, um, but you're tracking the price as, as a business, figuring out if it's fair, and you're extending the game forward. So it's that interplay between the customer pricing backward and the business extending it forward that gives this new kind of dynamic, which is a kind of emergent pricing model where the balance of forces between the individual customer and the business throw that out. So there's a lot of you know ways to get more sophisticated with tiers and keeping paywalls to keep people honest. But it, it also opens up value in a way that's really interesting because you can consider anything that you want as the value that you're agreeing on. So it's not just the narrow aspects of the product, it's social values, are you good to your employees, your suppliers, the environment, right. the service, all of those things can factor into how you set your price. You can also factor in a, a reverse meter, which is what value am I giving back to the business? If you're paying attention to ads or providing data, that's a value. If you're doing user-generated content, or co-creation of any kind, like participatory journalism, that has value, promotion, all of that stuff has value. So now you get into this much more nuanced concept of value uh, that determines what's the fair monetary exchange. And that's how you can sort of start to move through the value chain because you can not only say, what do you pay me for the, the thing you just used, but what do you pay me to continue you know, investigative journalism, creating great music? If there are suppliers like musicians, artists, writers, uh, you, can act, you can remind people, here are the people that have provided the stuff that you've enjoyed. Do you want to provide a bonus to them? You know, Dick, it reminds me of the B Corporation concept that's now becoming uh, quite popular here in California where you're looking at everybody in the value chain. So similarly to what you're talking about is, you know, what does the artist get paid per download? Or what is the, uh, if you want to create new content, how much more are you willing to pay to help to create uh, value for those who are in the creation process rather than those who are just in the distribution process? That um, the same is true for the environment where we pay more for environmental, the um, uh, safe products, et cetera. And for it's based on values that are different than just simply, um, as you said, a, a fixed price for a subscription without any consideration for those who are producing it. Maybe we can move on to um, another area that, that you have been working on, which is... Yeah, if, if I could just take a moment to, 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 to comment on that point. Sure. Um, yeah, that's exactly the the real thrust that fair pay comes out to. And I think what's important about it is a lot of those B Corp and multiple bottom line kind of concepts um, tend to be sort of fuzzy and they're problematic in a lot of ways. And they don't translate to the real bottom line. So they get into issues of investors and macroeconomics. So what I think is important about fair pay is that it puts a structured mechanism for individual agreements on these values and which ones get factored in, and they go into the actual bottom line. So they become part of the GDP, they become part of the revenues that investors are paying attention to, 
And so I think it's going to change the whole nature of capitalism to the extent that you get this kind of dialogue and bring that into the bottom line. Good. Well, that's great. And I appreciate that nuanced um, uh, comment. Um, <laughs> so maybe that takes us now to your um, work in the new regulatory framework for the internet. Um, can you briefly talk about that and then the role of the investment community playing in, the, in changing the paradigm of revenue sharing since those two are related? Sure. Um, yeah, so the, the thing about the, the internet is, um, you know, it's, it's come to the forefront with Facebook and social media uh, where people, you know, I had sort of begun to focus on, I'd done some work in this space independent of fair pay on this, how we do collaborative information systems, you know, building on work by Engelbard and Ted Nelson, uh, where everything's sort of intertwined, we're augmenting human intellect. And I've been disappointed that social media haven't done that very well. We've got the echo chambers and the uh, filter bubbles. And then we've gotten this real problem with disinformation. And so I realized this sort of converged with what I'm doing on fair pay because people have been suggesting that the original sin of the internet is this idea that we can use advertising models to fund free services. And the problem is we've now seen that it misaligns incentives. It makes businesses focus on serving the advertisers by getting engagement, showing stuff that makes you angry and upset and sort of, you know, addicts you rather than on real value. So I've been writing some on reversing the business model and building it on user revenue. Uh, some others have talked about ways to do that, but they've sort of been problematic that are hard to start. I'm suggesting with fair pay, you can build business models that generate user revenue in a way that works right now and that a company like Facebook could actually do on their own initiative without starting a, you know, a data aggregator or an infomediary or a mid, as some people have called it. Um, so it, it again uses market mechanisms within that a single company can do. So part of the idea is to use a fair pay style approach to get people to begin paying for social media but still do it in a way that people who can't afford it or don't get much value don't pay anything or not very much, but the ones who do pay more. And then as a, as a regulatory framework, I mean, there's a lot of broad issues. I referred to an article that looks at how you sort of separate these companies that are doing content related stuff from other kinds of platforms. And uh, he's got a lot of really good ideas. Uh, but within that one piece that he broke off, a simple strategy I've suggested is like auto emissions. We don't tell the car companies how to make cars more efficient. Uh, what we do is tell them their fuel efficiency has to be at a certain level. So we could say set X percent, say 5% of Facebook's revenue has to come from users and mandate that. And that'll start pushing them that, in that direction and then you can increase the percentage. And there's two ways they can do that. One is the more advanced forms of fair pay, but a simple form is simply to credit users for the ads um, so that now the credit is a form of user revenue 
And what that does is change the incentives. So now the ads are involving the user in the value proposition, which makes it more likely that advertisers will make the, the user comfortable that these ads are not intrusive, they're not too many, and I'm willing to you know, get the credit at this amount and, and watch the ads as opposed to paying to not watch them. You know, that's a beautiful idea. And um, in a way, like you say, it changes the logic of the digital economy. Um, and uh, that is a very simple idea that uh, certainly could be implemented. Um, you know, one, one thought that occurred to me as I'm, I'm listening to you talk about this is when new, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and maybe 10 other, the Atlantic and 10 other publications all ask for individual subscriptions on a network in which if you actually looked at it from the customer standpoint, I read, let's say, 10 publications. You may read the same 10 publications or eight out of the 10, and that when you start to cluster people based on their reading habits and what they select, even the themes or articles uh, on certain subject areas that they have a deep interest in, uh, these organizations don't coordinate bundled packages to my knowledge right. Uh, right. in terms of they're all vertical silos. And if you read the New York Times and you read the Atlantic and you read the New Yorker, by gosh, you've got to subscribe to each one of them. Exactly. Because if logic would say, hey, it's a network. Why don't you just go by based on what the user uses, either charge by article or have a bundled package in which you get all these publications that you want for one price and it's based on your usage and doesn't that go closer to what you're thinking about yeah exactly so yeah with with either full fair pay or these risk-free models now it's sort of you know the the price varies with how you use it whether you you know there's three publications you read heavily or you graze among 50 publications the price adapts, so you can decide whether you have direct subscriptions with certain publishers, or you can use aggregators, you know, like the new Apple service, and there have been a bunch of other similar things, or Netflix, uh, where you get, you know, a whole lot of different publishers or creators, um, and so it, it, and they can be aligned much more closely, that both of them use a similar model, so that it sort of you can migrate back and forth without changing the economics radically. And it's whichever one is more appropriate and whichever one gives you the kind of services you want. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you've talked a lot to the investment community, Dick. So uh, what role do you see the investment community playing in changing the paradigm of revenue sharing? Well, there's a few things. I mean, a lot of it centers on time horizon. Um, you know, related to relationships, subscription businesses. Some of this hap is happening already. And a, a good description of a lot of that, there's a company called Zora that's probably the dominant provider of SaaS backend services to subscription businesses, both B2B and B2C. And they uh, do a, a lot of, they analyze data on like a thousand companies to understand things. They've been doing a lot of good publications. There's a book out by the founder called Subscribed. And they, they've been talking about how financial evaluations change 
when you go from a product business to a subscription business. The whole issue of how you recognize revenue is no longer quarter to quarter, but it's a longer term thing based on customer lifetime value instead of products this quarter. And it has to do with cost of acquiring customers versus the churn uh, where you lose customers. So it shifts to a longer term view. Investors are beginning to realize that subscription businesses have a whole different basis. I've suggested that there's still, you know, we talk about customer lifetime value, but when you look into it, companies are really reading that. It's sort of like the old joke of enough of me talking about myself. Why don't you talk about me? What do you you think of me? Um, And the idea of customer lifetime value tends to be what's the value to me over the lifetime of the relationship. So I've been saying that we need a metric that I'm calling vendor lifetime value just to to be the flip side. Um, Value to the customer is another term. Uh, And you've got to look through the customer's eyes to see what's the value of the relationship to them over the lifetime. And that gives you much more insight and you can begin to build a business that's got real sustaining value. Um, Also, I think investors will start to see this, what we talked about before, how broader values can hit the bottom line and they can make money out of serving the environment, the employees, all these other factors. Um, One other thing that I I think is interesting that I haven't seen much on, uh, but I'm a member of Newark Angels, which invests in startup companies, the members invest. And one of the issues for VCs and early stage angels or whoever is it's not enough that the company's successful. You only make money as an investor if you have an exit where the company is sold or goes public. So that gets to be a very binary process and it tends to drive this excessive focus on growth at all costs. Uh, you know, don't worry about making the business sustainable, just make it look good so you can get an exit or go public or whatever. Uh, but if there are ways to do alternative exits that a company maybe that isn't going to grow really big, but it's got a good business serving people, creating value, there ought to be structures where they can buy out the investors, the investors make a reasonable profit, and the company just continues on its moderate level doing things that are good without having to worry about the investors. You know, Dick, it's interesting. Underlying everything that you've been talking about, much of this is technical, of course, is this idea of empathy for the needs of others, which we believe, uh, certainly Hunter Hastings and I in, in the book that we wrote, that empathy for the needs of others is the core of the entrepreneurial mindset and the technology augmented service ecosystem in which so many, not only in digital media, but in so many aspects of our lives, what are the, what is that empathy to customers, to investors, to the people who are supplying uh, the services and uh, delivering them, et cetera. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of empathy as being one of the values that, the investor community and certainly the companies should be focusing upon more than just return on investment and short-term profit. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Empathy is, is sort of central to what's underlying this. 
And yeah, there's sort of this inherent conflict that we tend to look at this more as a zero something we want our profits. So part of, I guess part of why I have the perspective I do is, um, well, I mean, maybe it's sort of a natural, but when I started in computing very early on, what appealed to me was uh, you could build a program that took, you know, people were doing lab very labor intensive uh, numbing work. Uh, one of the first programs I wrote was a guy was spending three days doing, I think it was a regular falsy, a calculation with a, with a desk calculator to estimate the value of a number. And uh, every, you know, every couple of weeks he'd have to spend, or, or maybe every week or two, he'd, he'd spend three days doing this one computation. Um, and I had just learned how to program and I wrote a program and they did it. And this was the days where, you know, it took several hours to get the results back, but still he gave me the data. Several hours later, I handed him the result and his, his jaw dropped. He was just amazed that now there was a way he didn't have to waste three days doing this stupid work. So it's always been the idea that, you know, it's this augmentation that Engelbart talks about that we should be doing interesting, productive work, not grunt work. Um, you know, whether it's crafts, handcrafts, uh, creative work. Uh, so my focus has been on that through my career. Um, I've often been, I've been in big companies, but like in IT, I was on the customer side buying from IBM rather than selling computers. So I had a focus of what does the customer want from an IBM mainframe or from a network service. And so that sort of carried through that. And, and that's why I sort of like this idea of the vendor lifetime value. And I think if, as we build models for how companies work that are more cooperative in setting values, then the companies will naturally become more apathetic that they want to satisfy their customers because then they'll get more from their customers. It's basically share of wallet. What you, and there's a lot of behavioral economic pay. What you want is actually very interesting to look at. And, the behavioral studies here get at empathy, altruism, reciprocity, fairness. There's all these things that are natural and they're basic traits that people have, some more than others. Um, and then there's another factor, and I've got a post that talks about this on the blog. There's an interesting study that was done at NYU uh, and it sort of separates the two factors. One is the traits of, that relate to empathy and altruism. But the other is the communal values versus exchange values, the norms of conduct. And so, you know, traditional markets tend to be communal. Uh, modern commerce has gone toward exchange norms where it's this race to the bottom, uh, zero-sum game, uh, bargain hunting. The businesses want to get the most out of the customer. The customers want to you know, hack a way to get bargains from the company, unsubscribe to Netflix, except when Game of Thrones is on, and then, you know, resubscribe and then unsubscribe again, which is just a total waste. Um, so by getting models that are more focused on this kind of empathetic relationship that get to the underlying value, then the economic structure follows the human structure much more effectively. And you get this holistic bottom line with things 
reflected in the price properly, and you get a GDP that measures real human value, not just the, the things we can easily measure. Well, you know, Dick, you have a very big idea. Um, as you know, so many are wrestling with this income inequality and the fact that um, the profits of uh, what the online companies such as Facebook, Amazon, in uh, Apple, in uh, Google, now Alphabet, if you take a look at the collective wealth of the top five companies, it dwarfs the, the traditional businesses and these new business models are actually driving businesses, many, many of the older forms, out of business. And yet that revenue sharing and that empathy seems not to have taken with these companies. So this is a very important uh, idea. And uh, I guess my, my la- last question to you is I, I can see what the values are that you're talking about. What is your motivation in doing all of this? What motivates your work and what do you hope your legacy to be? Well, it's basically that I see a way to make economics much more effective. I mean, I've always been sort of a believer in market economics as a way to find efficiency, make things emergent. And there's all of those benefits of the market, but it also is very ineffective in a lot of ways. There's a good book I just read by Tim Wu, The Curse of Bigness. We need levels of regulation to control things. But I guess, you know, from my perspective, uh, I'm trying to get people focused on better ways to make the market system work. Uh, It's sort of like the the line from Omar Khayyam, you know, wouldn't you like to smash the world to bits and remold it nearer to the heart's desire? Mm -hmm. We smash parts of our thinking about how markets work uh, and how pricing works and how business relationships work, we can rebuild that to make the markets work closer to the heart's desire. That's a beautiful way to end our conversation. For those of you who have listened, I encourage you to go uh, to Dick Reisman's uh, blog, Fair Pay Zone and take a look at his work. Um, Very intriguing, very important. And it's great to have this conversation with you, Dick. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.